election is about you, about what we can achieve together. Thank you very much. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, once again, here with... Luke Savage, here again, guys. Hi. I wish everyone from Michael and Us Nation was with us now, because we actually just started the night before we watched the movie by going through some of the archives of the student newspaper we used to work at, (laughs) uh, the Varsity at University of Toronto. It has a Wikipedia page. It's actually that big of a deal, folks. Actually, you know, that just made me realize that on the Wikipedia page, there's a notable alumni section. That's true. uh, Neither of us appears. (laughs) Well, and... I don't know. I mean, I, I might be time for that to change. I have two podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually started looking through the archives because Luke wanted to show off the column he had when he was in, I guess, second or third year. Well, show off is yeah. a little <laughs> Canadian content, it was called. <laughs> it had a beaver at the top. Yeah, a beaver with the logo. That wasn't your choice of a title, was it? It was not. What were some of the topics you wrote about in Canadian content? Um, how the federal budget is just one big distraction. Um, how, for the first time since December 2008, the Conservatives find themselves in very hot water. You know, hack shit. It was fine. We looked at it and it was, I was kind of like, it's better than I remember, but it's like, it. it I feel like where, where this is going and where our kind of reflections, once the laughter had kind of ceased on it went, was... Because we looked at some of your stuff too and it's kind of like... Mine's worse. I don't I know. It's, 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 it's kind of the competition's a little Herculean here, but I mean, <laughs> the, the, the issue wasn't so much like the fact that the writing was bad. It was more that, you know, like it was emblematic of just a certain kind of bad writing that when you first start out is just what comes to you naturally. Mm-hmm. You're playing a character. I've been thinking a lot lately about how in writing, actually coming up with your own ideas and being able to articulate them and not just spout received wisdom is a lot harder than you think it is. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think when we were writing those articles we thought we were doing that but that's we, right but we clearly weren't well for me like what i remember was that the maybe i'm not even doing it now who knows <laughs> yeah maybe like when we're in like michael and us season 10 <laughs> we'll go back and <laughs> yeah yeah what i remember from my own experience was that even if even if i was pausing anything new ever it was within the most confined space possible because my reference points i was a political science student and i read mainstream newspapers Mm -hmm. and so to me the only reference point i had for writing about politics was kind of this is the art of innovating on the back of orthodoxy and like truism like there's a narrow range of possibility in canadian politics and you know, everything felt kind of so inflexible then and and no change on any kind of meaningful scale really felt possible in politics, you know, at all. I remember at the same time, actually, um, and this is this is a little bit of a throw forward to what we talked about this week. But, you know, I followed the British election in 2010 really, really carefully. Right. I think it was right before, like right at the same time as like I, be- I became editor of the Varsity. Um, so kind of the the spring of, of 2010. And I just remember, like, if I went back and I read the stuff I was posting on Facebook about that election and kind of, I remember watching the debate and having a whole post about how impressive all three of the party leaders were and how, yeah. like, like, the people of Britain were, like, served well by this, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's crazy to think now. I mean, it's not that long ago, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's just something that when, you know, you, you're a young mind and you're and you're kind of first engaging with whatever interests you happens and you see it in a lot of really bad ways. You're trying to master because you don't even have you don't even have the, the rules figured out yet, really. Yeah. You know, you're trying to you're trying to 
sit at a table with the adults. Um, I know in some of my articles, that I, like I was really skipping past all my articles, I think the, the term Oscar buzz <laughs> might have come up at one point. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess our message here, let's end on a positive note. Yeah. This discussion is, you know, if you're starting out as a writer and you're having trouble, like one day you could have your own ironic Michael Moore podcast. And... An unpaid podcast, <laughs> even. By the way, if anybody wants to buy Will or I gifts for Christmas as kind of a reward, you can go onto my Amazon wish list. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Shameless well, I'll plug. tell you what gift that I want for Christmas. I think before we get into the movie, we should just uh, uh, do a segment that I call uh, Michael and Us. <laughs> Wait, that's more, what our podcast is called. No, no, more watch. More, more watch. More watch. That's our most popular segment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very unprofessional. Of l- it. Let me just drop in a little bit of music here. Oh, well, lives on my street, right down the street from me. Uh, Michael Moore is currently battling with Harvey Weinstein over the rights for the Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel, which was supposed to come out last month. I don't actually have anything to add to that. I d- did, did we talk about, like, what the hell is the Fahrenheit 9 Like, what, Fahrenheit 9-12? Like, what the fuck is it's, the it's for It's for the Donald Trump era. Oh, God, because that was the second 9-11. <laughs> he, yeah, he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna bring it down. So watch in the coming months when the Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel drops. If it drops, <laughs> it will be on the podcast. So that's our pledge to you. A return to a return to to form. Uh, it will be so exciting to be able to like for only the second time to talk about a new Michael Moore film on the podcast. It really was kind of special that time and and our most popular episode. Trumpland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um anyway, I mean, I guess you could say, you know, our little podcast started out with pretty modest ambitions and to be earnest just for a sec, it has been, you know, a lot more you know, a lot more of you are listening than we thought, and and it's really nice. All the nice tweets and the messages, uh, we 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 read all of it. And uh, thanks to everybody who's written us with or tweeted at us with uh, suggestions and and all that kind of stuff. We really appreciate it. As I said, we started out with kind of modest ambitions, and and we wanted to go through Michael Moore's catalog. And then after the election, Will said, you know, do you want to do a Triumph of the Will podcast? And actually, when he said that, I was I was mildly hesitant, not but I wasn't resistant, and we we did it and. And, you know, the podcast, I think, is, has evolved into, uh, you know, like it's, it's a bit of a universe. And I think it's it's allowed us to talk about all kinds of stuff. And, and today's uh, film, uh, the documentary we watched, The Summer That Changed Everything, is, I think, a case in point. And it's kind of far from Michael Moore. And yet I feel like it's, it's very Michael and us. You described Michael Moore in the past as a defunct avatar of liberal ineptitude and i think implicit in that statement is suggesting that there's a new approach a new generation that's coming to replace that particular brand of liberal ineptitude this documentary an hour-long bbc documentary by a filmmaker named david model which chronicles the summer 2017 British election and its aftermath, which saw Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party going from uh, a 20-point deficit in the polls to gaining over 30 seats. The Conservatives lost 12 seats and lost their majority. 2016, and the Labour Party is in chaos. Civil war has broken out between the new mass membership who joined up to support the veteran left-winger and the party's MPs who want him gone. He has now lost the confidence of the vast majority of his colleagues and I think that makes his position untenable. At Westminster, the Tories can't believe their luck. Did she actually know what 
It's time to put the opposition out of their misery with an electoral wipeout. Morning, what about me for your commute? I want to know what it's like to be a politician when your party is facing an election it can only lose. Have you written to me since I've been the MP? No, because I think you're all rubbish. So I'm going to spend the next few months with a handful of Labour's MPs. It has been unbelievably challenging and frustrating because I don't believe you can be a leader if no-one's following you. As they go through the most extraordinary period in the party's recent history. We've done a lot of American content, but shifting over to Britain, it's, which, you know, British politics, you know, I suggested this one, and British politics is something I'm, I'm really deeply interested in and have been for some years. And actually, bizarrely enough, the Labour Party was kind of, it was one of the places I really got my start kind of on the left, was studying the history of the Labour Party. Do you have uh, a real connection to the Labour Party? Weirdly, emotionally, yes. Yeah. Uh, I feel, and what's strange is I grew attached to it at a time when it was almost, I mean, not quite at its moral nadir, that would have been 2003, mm -hmm. but, but I mean, almost. We're yeah. actually quite different because I know very little about the Labour Party, except that I'm a staunch Blairite. <laughs> uh, I, I like that he made Labour like more electable. He modernized the party. Yeah, it was much needed. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think because we've talked so much about, um, and like we are Canadian, <laughs> people might not realize that, but you know, we've talked so much about American stuff. I think I should give just a very quick, you know, primer on kind of the recent history of the Labour Party, because I think that's really important to kind of put this film into perspective. So essentially, the Labour Party transformed Britain after 1945, and it created the welfare state, including the National Health Service and, and a number of other things. It, it created a mixed economy. It kind of realized a sort of quarter revolution in politics. It was a, a considerable transformation. And by the 1970s, the sort of Keynesian welfare state, if you want to call it that, was coming undone. And the Labour government of the 70s, first under Harold Wilson and then under Jim Callaghan, his successor, was facing, you know, these periodic crises and was kind of dealing with it by what can only be called a shift to the right and a turn to the economic model away from Keynesianism to what became monetarism, which was then fully embraced by Thatcher. And this kind of culminated in a series of retreats and defeats, the emotional scars of which, I mean, are, are still present, not just within the Labour Party, but within the British working class. The British working class was, you know, more punished and bludgeoned than any other in Europe to, to the point, you know, in the 70s, having this huge labor movement to by the, you know, late 1980s, the trade unions having fewer rights in Britain than they had in Eastern Europe. So in the midst of these defeats, which saw Thatcher win election after election, uh, you had a battle within the Labour Party. After the 79 defeat, you essentially had two competing diagnoses of what had gone wrong, much as you kind of see that now with the you know, election of Trump and the, you know, to some extent, the debate that's going on in the Democrats, if you can call it a debate. I'm not sure there's much to be debated. Oh, but um, it's a debate. But, <laughs> Come on. Sure, sure, sure. Um, cheap shot by me. So, you know, you had the one side of the party represented by figures like Tony Benn. Tony Benn, who'd been a cabinet minister in the last Labour government, and their view is essentially the reason we lost was because we became a sclerotic cadre party that was not accountable to its membership. Our membership was huge, but we weren't using them as a movement. We were disciplining them. Like we were disciplining our own working class with wage freezes and things that we were supposed to, you know, so we need to transform the party into a democratic vehicle. 
And that reached its high point in about, I guess, 82 or 81, when Tony Benn almost became the second in command of the Labour Party by sort of 0.3 votes, was defeated by the sort of more right-wing and conventional figure, Dennis Healy. And essentially after, you know, a few years of this, throughout through these awful defeats, the miners' strike, the 1983 election, the 87 election, what ended up winning was first a series of retreats kind of to the soft left by Neil Kinnock, who actually features in what we watched. Kinnock, you know, kept giving, kept giving, kept capitulating, still didn't win. And then that is really what paved the way for Blairism, where so these retreats kind of started as these tactical, you know, this is what it takes to win culminating in Tony Blair being like, no, we actually just hate trade unions. We we don't believe in equality. We believe in social mobility. In 97, Labour proudly bragged that its spending commitments matched the Tories. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, the really radical progressive thing to do is to join George Bush in Iraq, that kind of thing. So, um, And my man won, <laughs> you know? So, so I don't know why you're arguing a success. And so, so, you know, this is all to say that you have a whole generation of people on what, you know, you might call the British center-left whose formative political experiences, and this is what explains a lot of the resistance to Corbyn, whose formative political experiences are kind of these defeats, and whose view of politics is that the only thing that wins is a hyper-centralized, Westminster-focused, top-down type of party that is obsessed with PR and spin, um, that focus groups everything. You cannot win elections from the left. You can only win them from the center. There's a fixed constituency in every, you know, electorate, and that's what you go to. And so this that's the backstory against which the 2017 election, which this film chronicles, really happened. Now, how was Corbyn this, you know, somebody who's perceived as a radical left winger mm-hmm. able to take leadership of the party? It's I mean, it's a fascinating story, and you know, we could almost do a whole episode on that, but I mean basically Ed Miliband in 2015, who I, I think is is a very decent man, but, you know, his compromise was, you know, running on a few, very few kind of genuinely progressive things while also sort of trying to triangulate and say, but we're also going to control immigration and we're going to, you know, like we're, we're going to triangulate on austerity and those kind of things. So that didn't work either. So essentially you had a very demoralized party and you had a bunch of candidates to declare who, you know, ranged from the arch Blairite right to the sort of soft left represented by people like Andy Burnham, who is kind of like a better looking Ed Miliband with like a Northern charm, mm-hmm. also a well-meaning person, but who did not run a good, um, he's now the mayor of Manchester. Um, and then Corbin comes along and, and Corbin's one of those guys who was a, you know, sort of like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. He was around forever. He, and, he and was, he, a, he was a veteran of those struggles in the eighties. I was talking about, he was from the Benite wing. And he party. didn't, and like, like Sanders, he didn't compromise in mm-hmm. those eras. And he was sort of, you know, some might say in the political wilderness in Absolutely. those eras, but then was able to come back. Yeah. So basically by sort of 2015, the left of the labor party, I mean, I doubt it. You could call it more than like 15 MPs in a caucus of, you know, 230 or whatever, you know, like just very, very small, considered marginal in influence. When Corbyn declared for the leadership race, I mean, like I remember he didn't even feature on kind of the, the New Statesman had a, a page where they were compiling the constituency level nominations for the leadership candidates. And they didn't even bother to like put him on the pit, like picture. Like that's how much of a joke he was. He was widely disliked in his own party. There was a sense that among his political opponents that he didn't make enough effort to uh, reach out to the the center of the party or the Mm -hmm. right wing of the party. Mm -hmm. He didn't try to build coalitions. Mm -hmm. He was 
too uncompromising. Yeah, that's true. But all the other thing that benefited him is he was considered, even by people that didn't like him, very cordial. In order for him to stand, he needed like 15% of the uh, parliamentary caucus, which I think was something like 32 people at the time, to nominate him. So all these people that were categorically not going to vote for him nominated him because they were like, whatever, we'll have a debate. And a few of them even nominated him because they're like, this is our final chance to sink the left. Hmm. And because of a rule change that had happened actually to diminish the role of the trade unions, there had been an electoral college that had decided the labor leadership before they went to a one-member, one-vote system. And within days of Corbyn declaring, there was massive enthusiasm. And I mean, I followed it very closely at the time, and I loudly tweeted my support for Corbyn because my view was just like, you know, this guy's a principled left wing and there's absolutely nothing to lose. Like, I mean, you know, compromise and kind of capitulation clearly doesn't work. So how about we just try like a little bit of honesty and, and policies that would actually improve people's lives. And I mean, hundreds of thousands of people across Great Britain agreed. And Corbyn, you know, beat these three very establishment candidates with all the media support they had. Uh, I mean, by hundreds of thousands of votes. I mean, he got almost 60% of the vote. And then he survived a coup attempt that happened right after the Brexit vote about a year later, and he got an even bigger share of the vote to the point where Labour is uh, not only the biggest political party in Britain. I mean, the youth wing of Labour is bigger than the entire Tory party Hmm. um, now. Uh, Labour is the biggest, it's the biggest democratic party in like Western Europe. It's like something resembling a mass movement and that's the backdrop against which this kind of rather strange and extremely fun film we watched happens i don't know what to say i'm a member of the lib dem so <laughs> i'm a little bit biased losing the election will mean losing mps do you want a rosette or a sticker morning what about me for your commute top of the tory hit list with a majority of just 400 is ruth cadbury you local something to read for your commute She's just electoral cannon fodder. Something to read on your way in. Read that on your way to school. Do you want a few to take to school? Here, take a load to school, go on. Her only hope of survival is to chase every single voter. Hi, you got my contact details, then you'll be the MP again. No, because she's rubbish. Who is? Am I rubbish? You are, you don't return no email. Oh, which, what's your name? I'll, go, I'll check. What's your name and your address? I wasn't MP then. Have you written to me since I've been the MP? No, because I think you're rubbish. Okay. In in case you change your mind, here's my email address. Okay, I look forward to hearing from you. So this film follows four MPs in, I I think it's fair to say, the anti-Corbyn wing of the party. There's Ruth Cadbury, who's in a constituency where she won the previous election with just 400 votes, so she's on the Tory hit list. There's Sarah Champion, a former Corbyn surrogate in the media who was later ousted from the party for writing an anti-Pakistani article in The Sun. Yeah, yeah, which, oh my god, it's appalling. And it, what's weird is the documentary, I mean, I don't want to digress too much on it, but the documentary presents it almost sympathetically and she's saying like i don't want there to be like you know an atmosphere in the labor party where you know certain papers are off limits and there's literally this picture of this thing where it's like pakistani men are raping young girls and and then the first line you can see is there i said it or something it's appalling i mean it's it's like semi-sympathetic but at the same time like there's no getting around what she wrote yeah yeah, It's... it's, it's crazy there's then there's lucy powell who had been part of the shadow cabinet and and resigned from it when as one of the people in the highly orchestrated coup that happened but the real hero of the documentary is stephen kinnock 
the son of Neil Kinnock, former leader of the Labour Party, one of the people who is pushing the party more to the center, who is continuing dad's fight and <laughs> wants to be the future leader of the Labour Party and wants to oust Corbyn right after the election. He's kind of the main figure, I guess, of, of the four. And what's what's amazing about this film is it's it's clear that they started it with the intention of making something very different from what they produced, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know a lot about British politics, but I do like to think I know a lot about the media. And there used to be a period when, you know, for, for all of my lifetime, when the media could essentially declare a candidate dead yeah if howard dean yelled you know or if dennis kucinich appeared you mm-hmm. know with pants that were too short mm-hmm. they could be declared fundamentally just illegitimate in some way yeah. um and that seemed true really all the way up until 2012 mm-hmm. but in the last american election that crumbled mm-hmm. so this documentary show not only shows that crumbling but it also shows how susceptible the media still is to whatever the dominant narratives are Nobody wants to be on the losing team. Yeah. Earlier this week, you were posting on Facebook, uh, Jeremy Corbyn on the cover of GQ magazine. Yeah, it's incredible. On their best dressed issue. We're in, a, of we're in like a parallel universe. And either all these media people suddenly became the Marxists that they said they weren't no. two years ago, or, you know, they want to be on the winning team. Well, I think what you see in this film <laughs> is there's two categories of people, essentially, that, that got Corbyn wrong. And you see both of them in this film. I don't know a lot about Lucy Powell, who, you know, is one of the MPs featured in the film, but she strikes me as someone who's from the soft left of the party and is just of this view that, like, you know, you can't win elections from the left. And, like, you know, how can we win an election if, if The Guardian and The Observer and The Independent and, you know, The Telegraph and they say that we're dead, so we can't... Corbyn is done, like, once that's happened. How can you lead a party when your colleagues are against you in Parliament? That kind of thing. But there's a difference between opposing a person or a narrative or an institution because you think that's kind of the path of least resistance versus like actually actively not wanting that person or institution to succeed. Well, they try to make it sound like it's not ideological, mm-hmm. like it, they're just stating a fact. But with, you but can't with do it. That, right. Yeah. So yeah, and, that, and that's part of the like sclerotic, like post-political aura that has kind of dominated so much of our lives and, mm-hmm. and which is, I feel like, really what we're kind of shadow boxing with every week on Michael and Us. But, uh, the sense that there are these policies that we can all agree on mm-hmm. and there are these, you know, fundamentally we're all on the same team. That's right. It's these divisive, right. you know, yeah. demagogues. Whether it's, whether it's Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't know, frankly, <laughs> I was seeing some of Corbyn's rallies in, in this movie, uh, <laughs> seeing how he p- played on people's emotions. He gave it, them false hope. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> reminded me of uh, a certain other politician. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess this, this is just the second category, just going back to what I said before, you know, that's really represented by Stephen Kinnock. He's like Tony Blair. He doesn't want to win an election from the left. He's kind of crossed the Rubicon to the point of just, you know, he's he's not a member of the left really in any meaningful sense. He's He just happens to be institutionally affiliated to a party that was literally founded to abolish capitalism, but but he has no interest in that. It's not actually clear what interests him at all in this film. We don't hear him talking about what his goals are. He just keeps talking. We need to be a party of government. We need to be a party, you know, that looks serious, but there's no politics to any of that. And we see on election night when the exit polls are announced, the other MPs are pleasantly surprised and and kind of baffled, but Mm. in in a good way. And then... There's that indelible shot oh. of him and his wife looking awful. It's just the, the, the rigors of agony on the <laughs> face of golden boy of the Labour Party, Stephen Kinnock. And the rumor is, 
I mean, I don't want to get sued for, you know, but I mean, the rumor is that he had a leadership campaign. He and other figures like Yvette Cooper in the Labour Party essentially had leadership campaigns in place. They had hired people and like they were 12 hours from declaring Corbyn needs to go. I'm going to be the next leader. So what's going through Stephen Kinnock's head at that point is is presumably not, wow, like we've been saved from the jaws of the feet. The country is going to be spared the worst of the conservative manifesto. We've, you know, progressive politics is back in a big way. He's thinking, I'm going to have to fire these people who are <laughs> going to write like nasty attack ads tomorrow. Uh, I'm not going to probably be the future of the Labour Party. The politics I've, you know, given my incredibly pampered career to are... Uh, <laughs> Are, like for some, people don't understand they don't appreciate this uh you know there's um these young people they don't respect me you know all that kind of that's kind of what's going through his head and and as he's leaving the count you know neil kinnick his dad the former labor leader is kind of you know he's like it's very perplexing Stephen. i mean they're just they just don't know how to process it it's incredible we see him do give an interview after where he says it's great we got a lot of young people out <laughs> he's um, not talking he's not talking he's but, just talking about but, his own but like... the, the big story of the night is that Theresa may really bungled <laughs> it which is you know how a lot of people tried mm-hmm. to spin the election mm-hmm. afterwards it was it was less corbin than it was yeah you know the yeah. the, the the u-turn on mm-hmm. the manifesto yeah essentially what we see in the final 20 minutes of the of the film is just you know the whole film the tone of it just changes very suddenly and as the film wears on suddenly the corbin who's almost been a like a prop in the first part of it suddenly he kind of is appearing more and more there's a peculiar about- scene in early in the movie at one of corbin's rallies where you see all these you know working class often Mm non-voters who are you know kind of weeping at being able to get him to autograph their books and the the filmmaker david model says in the narration you know words to the effect of but outside the corbin bubble yeah uh yeah. Th- think things are harder <laughs> you know giving sort of the sense that like well okay you know and he says it's they, more like a congregation in a way that's clearly meant to be sort of a dig yeah sinister like mm-hmm. demagogish but you and and also the idea that corbin's deluding himself mm-hmm. like okay you've got these ten thousand people in this <laughs> arena but outside no big deal labor seems to be running two different campaigns The leader's going from one mass rally to the next, surrounded by genuine excitement. He's putting himself in a kind of bubble of love. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for those on the roof over there. Thank you for those up the tree over there. I catch up with the Corbyn love bubble as it floats into Watford. Here, he's the party's biggest asset. Everything he thinks. I've thought for 65 years. I was a non-voter. Now I'm a, I'm a £3 a month paying member of the Labour Party. Because he actually made sense. Everything I was hearing from him was what I want for my children. He interviews Sarah Champion and he says something like, you know, how does that make you feel? And she says, you know, oh, it's intoxicating. But then, you know, it's, it's all a game, really. She's like, there's these people and they put all their hope in him. And it's just, you know, I mean, I, and I think it's it's very striking. What, one of the things that resonates the most with, with me about the Corbin phenomenon is, and one of the reasons I think it's been so successful is because, like, I mean, I've been in so many rooms in kind of my professional uh life and my kind of career and my you know my brief career in politics or whatever where you're there and you're you're supposed to be excited i remember a a particular rally from an election i will not name (laughs) of that was just it was near the end of the campaign almost everybody there was like a paid staffer and it was extremely painful it was 
you know, just having to pretend, having to simulate, you know, an enthusiastic rally because the cameras were there. And, you know, even even experiences that are less unpleasant than that, anyone that's been to a, you know, a typical, polit- you know, rally mm-hmm. for really any political party, what you find is, you know, you're asked, you know, will you stand behind the cameras? We, you know, we need to, it needs to look good on TV. You're like, you're just very aware of the artifice mm-hmm. and you're aware of your own passive role within it. And some people effectively internalize that and they almost kind of embrace, yeah, I'm here to do monkey work and do the, you know, but other people, like ordinary people, to be honest, like the only thing that gets them excited is, you know, the feeling that they actually have some control over their lives, that they can play a role in something that's bigger than themselves. And and the fact that the dominant reaction of kind of metropolitan media what, looking at the Bernie Sanders thing, looking at Corbyn, what these these, these big rallies like somehow this isn't real. What's really real mm-hmm. is a bunch of like paid hacks sitting in a room, <laughs> applauding for lines that say like we must go forward, not backwards, and that kind of thing. This is what real grown up politics is. And if you think anything else, you're 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 either a gormless naif or a dangerous demagogue. Uh, people are sick of you know being lectured to about what there's a one lady that's interviewed by the filmmaker where she just says you know uh the media just tells people what they're supposed to believe in there and you know they're sick of it Mm -hmm. um and i think there was something just so kind of cathartic and kind of organic about what happened around corbin and the fact that um even this filmmaker who was you know out every day presumably for you know a month or more kind of barely registered it until that exit poll dropped i think that says an awful lot about kind of the state of how establishment media conceives of and covers And then politics. for the last scene of the movie, the filmmaker is fully on board because it cuts back and forth between Stephen Kinnock kind of sitting alone on a bench somewhere. On a beach. On a, yeah, on a beach talking. Sort about, of an implied sad violin. Well, it's like he comes across as like a Ricky Gervais character <laughs> where he's talking about, how, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> y- y- you know, I need to learn from the young people, but, you know, they you know, they could also learn from me. And uh, I think when those two, when those two uh, diverge, that, so, that's, but, when you're, that's when there's trouble, you know? So build on it, yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it cuts back, you know, from him, and then it cuts back to the Corbin rally. Mm-hmm. where you know the camera very strategically hones in on all these very young yeah. uh diverse often mm-hmm. working class yeah. people as if to say actually we don't really need steven yeah steven yeah. kinnock anymore my my wife Hella's favorite phrase in the world is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and i absolutely sign up to that one um and and that's that's what life is about you know you you you, you get knocked back you dust yourself up you, you pick yourself up and you keep going Labour is ready, ready to rebuild our national health service. Ready. I'm like so much older than these young people coming into Momentum. Those young guys, they need me and I need them. And if we can make that work, uh, then that's a, that's a fantastic opportunity for the party. That's the magic of a political movement, if you can bring those two things together. But if those two things diverge, we're lost. You know, the other thing you see in kind of the final 20 minutes of the film is this this meeting that Momentum is having. So Momentum was the extra-parliamentary group that came out of Corbyn's leadership campaign. And I understand that on election day alone, they knocked on something like a million doors. And they were able to essentially bypass um, using social media and using just campaign apps. They were able to harness all this enthusiasm 
to bypass the, you know, the kind of official media narratives and just reach people. Theresa May actually, I think, posted far more social media content and received like just a fraction of, of the views. Why and, was Theresa May so ineffective at social media? Because obviously Trump is, in his way, very savvy at it. Well, they were, I think, fighting a very uh, conventional campaign, aided, in fact, not by a Republican, but by Jim Messino, Obama's, <laughs> uh, my, you know, friend of the show. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, and a former Obama staffer, I think, also, had, I think, worked for David Cameron as well. You know, there's that wonderful Jim Messina tweet. Well, just can I just digress to Jim Messina for a second? There was uh, you so know, many people on your hit list. The last uh, friend of the show, the last uh, like three or four tweets before the exit poll dropped were just like so sublime. There was one where it's a picture of. Um, I guess a plane flying over somewhere in Britain with a vote labor banner. And he's like, you know, while labor is running a campaign, you know, stuck decades ago, we're taking it digital <laughs> or whatever. And, um, you know, they were just running a very conventional campaign. That's like, okay, these are the TV stations you need to, how you this, is how you do politics and it can't, it can't fail. But so the other thing about that I want to say about momentum is, you know, there's that wonderful scene where they're kind of sitting around having that meeting and there's, um, you know, and they're just, they're training people, not, not importantly, they're training people not to go around and be like, are you going to vote labor? You know, okay. And if they say yes, you write a one on a sheet or you do a check mark or whatever. They're training people to actually talk to their neighbors, to persuade them to do campaigning that is not strictly tied to an election cycle and is not about, you know, re-elect your local labor MP, but is about, like, here's how we, like, actually change things. And there's a wonderful moment where, you know, uh, the kind of chair of the meeting says to them, uh, you know, what's your favorite moment from the campaign? Who wants to go first? And a lady talks about... And on the last day, we did this um, housing estate that hasn't been done for years and we had one hour um, and in that time we persuaded eight people to go and vote in that just over one hour and the gorgeous thing was people were coming past us on the way out of voting going I've done it we've done it we've done it, we've done it. And people going past in cars, pipping on. We've done it. Oh. Eight people. We've got eight balls. Yeah. And I mean, that is. There's something like quietly powerful about that to me. Just, I mean, this phenomenon of kind of bringing out non-voters by actually not treating people like idiots by, by, by not thinking that the job of a political activist is to bring a, a an extremely kind of homogenized message. Um, from the metropole down to the masses and ask them to kind of put a check on a ballot, but actually kind of bring, bringing people in and involving them. I think that's really important. And um, I think that's kind of what we what we see in the in the film. I really enjoyed the movie. I think it's a, an extraordinary document. I don't know how much I respect the movie. Right. I mean, the fact that it essentially contradicts its entire position at the end. Well, actually, I don't know if it really does fully contradict itself because it doesn't you don't know what the filmmaker actually thinks about politics so you don't get a sense of what's jeremy corbyn running on what are these people running on it's all about the horse race mm -hmm. and know? i actually i think that's i think that just reinforces your point that yeah. i mean you know the, the they went into this film with an idea that there's there's just there's just the narrative capital t capital n and then we're pursuing it Mm -hmm. And the job of the media is to is to chase the na the narrative. Mm -hmm. the The narrative is thinks of itself as apolitical, but it endorses the narrative. It endorses yeah. two narratives. Just implicitly, it does. But, yeah. And, yeah. But then at the end, it has to kind of 
it has to, the new narrative is, well, we actually kind of got this wrong. And whatever the dominant narrative is, that's the correct narrative. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So I wanted to read a passage from um, the second edition, just just uh, kind of freshly out of Richard Seymour's really wonderful book, uh, Corbin, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. Um, if you don't follow Richard Seymour, he's one of my favorite commentators uh, on uh, British politics, politics in general, at Leninology on Twitter. Um, and, you know, he had to come out with a second edition of this book basically because of the general election. And, um, you know, there was a, a particular incident in the election that I think is uh, synonymous with, you know, it sort of says a lot about the Corbyn phenomenon. I just wanted to read kind of briefly from the book here. Uh, so there's a section, this whole chapter on the election, and this section is called Memes and Media. It says, if Labour's manifesto was a turning point of the campaign, the second turning point was Corbyn's unexpected appearance before a crowd of concert goers at Tremere Rovers football stadium on 20th of May. This almost didn't happen. Many in Corbyn's team were worried that the response was unpredictable. This was not a political crowd. Those in attendance were 18 to 30-year-olds, not expecting a politician to show up. There was a risk that they might boo or throw bottles. The appearance might be relentlessly mocked and trolled on social media. It was judged that Labour's campaign was going well, so why spoil it with a big risk like this? He arguably needed to do something new. The bands appearing that night from Reverend and the Makers to the Libertines were keen for Corbyn to attend, and so it was agreed that he would introduce Reverend and the Makers. Corbyn gave a short, characteristic speech addressing education, jobs, health, housing, and decent pay, thanked the crowd, and stood back from the microphone. There was some cheering, and then a low noise started up from the crowd. One of those present recalls, We heard the, ooh, noise, and for a moment we thought they were going to boo. And Jeremy paused for a minute before he clocked it. They were singing, Oh, Jeremy Coburn. It gave us such a buzz. Then for the rest of that concert, between every single song, 20,000 people were singing his name, and then it spread. Last week, someone tweeted footage of people chanting in the Truck Festival, which is between Ed Vasey and David Cameron's constituencies right in the middle of Tory country. I thought it would go well, but no one thought it would go this well. This meme, the most popular of many among Corbyn supporters, popped up in nightclubs, concerts, and football stadiums all over the country from Newcastle to Liverpool, Camden, and Birmingham. How did this happen? It wasn't because of a labor plan. You can't script enthusiasm like this. It wasn't because of Corbyn's personal magnetism. The man who went on the BBC's The One Show to discuss his allotment and jam-making predilections doesn't exude power and dominance. But arguably, unlike many politicians, he approaches young people as equals and takes them seriously as interlocutors. The same qualities enabled him to reach out to celebrity supporters like JME, who interviewed him for ID. One squirms to imagine, for example, Theresa May or Philip Hammond in a similar setting. So I think that the the key line there is you can't fake enthusiasm like mm. that. And what's always struck me as the most artificial thing about election campaigns, just from my experience in them, is, is they're kind of all about giving the impression of momentum because people are going to see it on TV. So the idea is we have to create good TV so people kind of go wow, that looks exciting. I want to be a part of that. But everyone on some level knows it's artificial. And like after a certain amount of time, especially when people's lives are not going very mm -hmm. well, they, people just don't buy it. Well, I mean, as a hardcore Trump supporter, you know, I agree. <laughs> uh, before we go, I actually want to uh, ask, did watching all these scenes of 
MPs knocking on doors, canvassing. Did that bring back traumatic memories for you? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've done that so many times and, you know, even as a candidate myself and... Uh, Any funny stories? <laughs> oh, I mean, the first door I knocked on as a candidate, a woman like, I mean, basically slammed the door on my arm and she was just, I don't, I, she was kind of mostly talking in Portuguese and she was very agitated and uh, she basically chased, like physically chased me off her porch Wow. Um, that was the first door I knocked on. So, you know, I'm thinking this is the beginning of my political career. I'm so excited. Well, that's also a bit embarrassing because you think, well, what if the neighbor saw me? <laughs> How am I supposed to be dignified after that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there, I mean, I remember having like, I remember a particular day where surprisingly I had a bunch of conversations that felt quite authentic. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and that felt good. But there's so much about kind of the professional enterprise of politics that doesn't give you that feeling. And you can react to that in one of two ways, which is you can either internalize it and, you know, become, you know, welcome to the machine, you know, or you can kind of try to think about how do we push back against that? And how do we craft a democratic politics that's actually kind of worthy of the name and that people actually want to be involved in? Now watch this drive. Well, it's a straight fight here at Leicester. On the left of the returning officer, you can see Arthur Smith, the sensible candidate and his agent. And on the other side is the silly candidate, Jethro Walrus Titty, with his agent and his wife. Here is the result for Leicester. Arthur J. Smith. Sensible party. 30,612. <laughs> Jethro... Q Walrus Titty. Silly party. 32,108. Well, there's the first result, and the silly party have held Leicester. What do you make of that, Norman? Well, this is largely as I predicted, except that the silly party won. <laughs> I think this is mainly due to the number of votes cast, Gerald. Uh, well, there's a swing here to the silly party, but how big a swing, I'm not going to tell you. Well, if I may, I think the interesting thing here is the big swing to the silly party, and of course, a very large swing back to the sensible party, and a tendency to wobble up and down in the middle because the uh, screw's loose. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid I can't think of anything. I can't add anything to that. Colin, I just butt in at this point and say this is, in fact, the very first time I've ever appeared on television. No, no, we haven't time because we're going straight over to Luton. Here at Luton, it's a three-cornered fight between Alan Jones, Sensible Party, in the middle, Tarquin, Fim, Tim, Lim, Bim, Wim, Bim, Lim, Bust, Stop, Fatang, Fatang, Ole, Biscuit Barrel, Silly Party, and Kevin Phillips, Bong, the slightly silly candidate. Alan Jones. On the left, Sensible Party. 9,112. <laughs> Kevin Phillips, Bong. On the right, slightly silly. Not. <laughs> Fim, Tim, Lim, Bim, Wim, Bim, Limbus, Stop, Fatang, Fatang, Ole, Biscuit Barrel. Silly. 12,441. And so the Silly Party has taken Luton. Again for the Silly Party at Luton, the first gain of the election. Norman. Well, this is a highly significant result. Luton, normally a very sensible constituency with a high proportion of people who aren't a bit silly, has gone completely gaga. Do we have the swing at Luton? Well, I've worked out the swing, but it's a secret. <laughs> Uh, can I just say at this point, this is in fact the second time I've ever appeared on television? I'm sorry, Sasha, we're just about to get another result. Oh, from Harbenden. Now, this is a key seat because in addition to the official silly candidate, there is an independent, very silly candidate who may split the silly vote. Mr. Elsie... <laughs> silly? 26,317. 
James Walker. Sensible. 26,380. That was close. Malcolm Peter Brian Telescope Adrian Umbrella Stand Jasper Wednesday Stoat Gobbler John Raw Vegetable Arthur Norman Michael Featherstone Smith Northcott Edwards Harris Mason Frampton Jones Fruit Bat Gilbert will keep away. Williams, if I could walk that way, Jenkins. <laughs> Tiger draws, Pratt, Thompson, raindrops keep falling on my head. Darcy, Carter, Pussycat, don't sleep in the subway, Barton, Mannering, Smith. Very silly. A sensible gain here at Driffield. Norman. Well, I've just heard from Luton that my auntie's ill. Uh, possibly, possibly gastroenteritis, Gerald? Uh, well, if this were repeated over the whole country, it would probably be very messy. Colin. <laughs> Can I just butt in and say here that it's probably the last time I shall ever appear on television? No, I'm afraid you can't. We haven't got time. Uh, just to bring you up to date with a few results uh, that you may have missed, Engelbert Humperdinck has taken Barrow in Furness. Uh, that's a game from Anne Hayden-Jones and her husband, Pip. Uh, Arthur Negus has held Bristol's. Uh, that's uh, not a result. That's a bit of gossip. And uh, Mary Whitehouse has just taken umbrage. Could be a bit of trouble there. Uh, apparently, Wales is not swinging at all. No surprise there. And uh, Monty Python has held the credits.